Aloha. I want to begin this morning by just expressing what an honor it is to finally be with you. Uh, I remember meeting Travis the first time, having an opportunity to, to talk to him, and, and just thinking, wow, it, this guy is so gracious and so encouraging. I, I can't imagine what the church he comes from must be like. And I would love to go to that church someday. And so we, we're here, and I get to be with you. And it's been a wonderful weekend. Kim and I have so enjoyed our time with the folks that came out for the marriage retreat and, and being with Dan and Leo and Travis for lunch the other day and then hanging out with the Scots and their kids last night. It's just been a really full weekend. And you guys have done such a, such a great job receiving us and being so so gracious and encouraging. So I want to say thank you for receiving us so warmly. And I have the privilege now of teaching you from the Word of God. So you can open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. It is my hope to make a contribution into the series on Proverbs, but to do it from the book of Philippians. But I understand you're studying themes of peace and wisdom and I think Paul can help us there as well. So Philippians chapter 4, I'll read verse 11 through 13, and please read along with me. <clears throat> Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to come to you now with our needs and our desires and lay them before you and invite you to, through your word, examine our hearts and inspire our passion for you and help us to understand better what it means that you can do all things or that we can do all things through you as you are the one who strengthens us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin this morning with a question. It's one I want to get you thinking about right at the outset here. Here's the question. How do you respond when you face some incomplete goal? some unfulfilled dream or, or desire for your life. You know, maybe you had a vision for what your life was going to be like by this stage or the path that you were going to be walking, and, and yet you hear, you're here this morning, you're honestly able to say, you know what, I haven't begun down that path. I can't even find that path. Or maybe you've begun down the path, but you're just going, the journey is just so much slower than you ever expected. 
you know, I had to face that a little bit with, with writing. And I want to say straight off, I'm, I, I'm not an author. I don't con I consider myself an author. I, uh, I, I, I do a little blogging. I've written a little. But I hate to write. And I know writing hates me as well. So it's kind of a relationship built on mutual disdain for each other. But, and I know, and I know I'm not an author because I've met folks, and some of you might be here this morning where, you know, you, you love to write and you just want to get alone and let the inner author out to play in the field of words. And my inner author never comes out. I mean, my inner author just wants to stay in bed and just wants me to do all the work. So that's, that's, that's part of how I know what's going on with respect to writing. But here's the thing that's interesting. Writing kept, came to represent something for me in my life. In other words, it was something I aspired to, but it didn't come in the way I expected. It didn't come in the timetable I predicted. In fact, for a long time, for like two decades, it didn't come at all. In other words, it was one of those areas of life where the dream was strong, but it always seemed just out of reach, and I just couldn't get to it. You know what I'm talking about. You, you have areas of life like that where, the, where, where, where that, that desire in your life just represents a kind of intersection where your dreams and the denial of those dreams collide together like two speeding trains on the same track. Do you have any areas like that? You know, some incomplete goal, some unfulfilled dream, something like that that hovers over you like a dark cloud and, in fact, settles on you in the form of a statement. It's a statement that stalks you and haunts you and taunts you as it whispers this paralyzing thought, by now I should have been, and you're an expert at just filling in the blank then, by now, I should have been married. By now, I should have been financially secure. By now, I should have been more healthy or had a better job or had better kids. By now, I should have had a better life than the one I have right now. And it's the voice of unsatisfied desire and we may not be aware of it, but it's also the voice of discontent. Contentment, discontentment happens when our ambitions are frustrated. In other words, we aspire to something, but God did not deliver it in the timetable we expected. God did not deliver it in the way that we thought it was going to come. And so we stew in self-pity and wonder why God is so sloppy in the way he runs our life because we have not what we desire. And just to be clear, to want health, to want leadership, to want marriage or stability is not wrong. It can actually be a sign of very good and healthy and godly desires. But the real issue is how we feel and how we live and how we relate to God when we don't get what we want when we want it. It's when desires become demands that we become discontent because we have not what we desire. 
Now, there's a lot of things I want to talk about today, but I want to telegraph to you right up front where we're going. I want to talk to you about what the key to contentment really is, because I think this passage delivers us right there. But one of the ways I want to get at it is to sum up for you or to, or to give you a statement that I think sums up for all of us what the key to contentment is. And it comes from one of my favorite Puritan authors, a guy named Thomas Watson, who once said, if you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. If you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. Now, that's, that's our destination because that's the destination of the passage. And we're going to explore that. But for the moment, let's just move that idea to the side and leave it, you know, put it on a hook, leave it hanging there, and let's return to Paul and the context here in Philippians for and, and a line-upon-line exposition of what's taking place. So we're here in Philippians. Once again, we meet Paul. And, and by the way, Paul is not, at this point of his life, kind of perched atop a customized writing desk penning these grand thoughts to the Philippians. The dude's in prison. And and the, he's writing to this group of people that he loves. It's a good church. It's a strong church. But like all churches, they have problems. And their problems have to do with disunity and conflict. And Paul wants to help them. But the problem is he's in prison. He's locked away. He's confined. He's contained. Have you, have you ever been in a situation where you have somebody that you love? Maybe over on the mainland. Somebody that you love that's experiencing troubles and challenges over there, and you would love to get to them, but you can't. And that's where Paul is right now as he's writing Philippians. He's writing to the Philippians. He's in prison. He's locked down. He's restrained. He's confined. And he's trying to help those people that he loves. And so he writes them this letter. And he writes chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. We, we get to chapter 4, and in chapter 4, he's specifically addressing their financial need. And what he does is he thanks God for their financial support. But he says he doesn't need it because Paul had learned to live having not what he desired. In fact, let's just listen to him talk about it. Let me, let, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to Paul. He says, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. Now, again, he's certainly talking about financial need there, but clearly goes beyond financial need because he says, for, in, for I have learned in whatever situation, whatever situation. So he's talking about whatever situation. He says, I have learned to be content. I mean, think about, let's just stop there for a second and let's slow it down and let's, let's let the text breathe a little bit and consider the fact that the guy talking to us is in prison. He's in prison and restrained, but he's not in need. He's in prison, he's restrained, he's confined, he's constrained, but he's not in need. How does that work? Well, Paul says, it's because, he explains it to us, it's because I've unlocked the mystery. I've unlocked the secret of contentment. And this is how Paul describes it. In whatever situation I am, I have learned to be content. And it's not like he leaves that as just an abstract idea or something that's clinical that we can't get or we have to figure out. No, he defines what he's talking about. He says, I can abound, I can be brought low. 
I can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need, without being plagued by that statement that haunts us and taunts us so often like, by now, I should have been. In other words, Paul was able to be satisfied and at peace with God and at peace with God's will in all situations. In fact, Paul was able to be satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations without abandoning his dreams. You know what I mean by that? See, one of the ways that we try to punish God for the poor decisions that we think he makes for our life is we give up our ambitions and our aspirations for him. The average Christian is not going to say, oh, God, my life is not going the way I expected, and therefore I'm disappointed, so I'm bailing out. I'm going to go become a Muslim, or I'm going to go become an atheist. That's not the way the average Christian rolls. The average Christian, if they're going to react and respond to that which they don't understand, they're going to say, oh, I get it. I get it. You, you hold all the cards. You control all things. I know nothing. I have certain desires, things that you've even inspired in my heart to want to do to glorify your name, to want to do to move forward, to want to be somebody that more than what I am, and yet I can't get there, and I have no explanation. And so here's what I'm going to do in response to you ruling all things. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to betray you. I'm just going to walk off the field. And I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to sit on the sidelines, and I'm going to punish you by withdrawing my ambition, by taking away my desire and my zeal for you. It's interesting. Paul's in prison. I mean, think about who was one of the most ambitious and zealous and and desire-filled men that ever lived in the history of the world. It must have been this guy who was unstoppable in taking the gospel from one culture to the next. And yet here in this life, here here in this phase of of his life, he's in prison. He's shut down. He doesn't know what the future holds. He's constrained and confined. Yet we begin to discover that Paul's sense of significance was not situational. His Sense of significance was not assigned to his status. His peace did not rest in anything outside of his relationship with Jesus Christ. That's all he needed. And so he could be rocking it and heading towards Spain to preach the gospel and having all these adventures, or he could be sitting in prison. And the way people responded to him didn't wreck his peace. It didn't wreck his personality and didn't stamp people would stamp their disapproval on him, and, and, and he would say, well, you know, that's, that's your thing. I know what Jesus says about me. You know, I remember reading a biography on, on Jonathan Edwards, and it's a great biography. It's, it's by a guy named Marsden, but I forget his first name. But he made this passing statement about Jonathan Edwards. He, he, said, he said, Jonathan Edwards' happiness was outside of the reach of his enemies. And when I heard that, I was like convicted because I thought, I don't think I can say that about myself. And 
Maybe it affects you the same way. Is your happiness outside of the reach? Well, let's take enemies off the table. Let's put it just in regular life. Is your happiness outside of the reach of your boss? Is your happiness outside of the reach of your roommates or of your spouse? Or you got small kids here? Is your happiness outside of the reach of your kids? All of that is just another way to ask the question, am I content? Now, I get it when we, you know, we read Paul, and I mean, this just sounds so untouchable for us. This is Paul talking, and Paul got that whole apostolic thing going on. I mean, he's a writer of Scripture. He went to the third heaven, whatever that is. But who knows? Maybe when you come back from third heaven, one of the consolation prizes is you're happy about everything and you're content even when you're in prison. I don't know. But it's evident in the way that Paul, in what Paul writes, that this issue of contentment was not included in conversion. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if we could sell Christianity to our neighbors? Hey, part of the conversion package is you get contentment. But it doesn't work that way. Paul says, I have learned the secret. See, for Paul, he acquired this. He developed this. And the encouraging thing for us this morning is it was available to Paul, and it's available to us as well. So how does that work? Well, let's just keep marching through the text. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned this secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So <clears throat> Paul's using these different words that basically begin to describe all of the experiences that you can have in life. It's almost like Paul specifies the field of play for the experience of contentment and begins using words like abundance and need. And, you know, he's basically saying any and all circumstances. And yet they cluster together where Paul is trying to help us to understand that regardless whether he's on one side of life or on the other side of life, regardless of whether things are going great or things are going poor, like the first group of words he uses is abounding, plenty, abundance. You know, there Paul's talking about the good times. He's talking about the times where everything's going the way that we hoped it would. You know, you get the raise. Or you're engaged and you've been waiting so long and it's finally happened. Or your prayer is answered or you got the promotion or, or you're selected for the role that you were hoping to get selected for. In other words, your dreams are coming alive. Your desires are being satisfied. Life is getting good. Your ambitions are fat and happy. To adapt that Watson phrase we were talking about earlier, you have what you desire. Now, now don't miss this because this is what Paul says. Paul says, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I, I know how to do that. Now, do you think like I think? You know, because my instinct is to think, uh, yeah, don't we all? Lord do, you, Lord, do you doubt? Doth thy doubt that thy servant Dave can do abundance and abound? Lord, smite me with a Lexus, and I will show thee that I can do abundance and abounding just like Paul did. And have you ever noticed that our, our dreams for the future are always dreams of abounding and abundance? It's very rare to dream low. 
<laughs> you know, very, very rare to aspire to be poor. Johnny wants to be homeless. Go, Johnny, go. You know, that's not the way parents are talking to their kids. Because to a dream, to dream is to aspire to a better future. But here's the thing we begin to learn as we examine the life of Paul in Philippians. And that is that his happiness was not linked to a satisfied dream. His happiness was not linked to a vision of what the future had to look like. That God had to deliver this future in order to prove that he loves Paul. Paul didn't roll that way. And there was a sense where Paul understood, even in the language that he's using, that always abounding just isn't reality. But I think he understood something else as well. And that is that the greatest temptations in life can come, not necessarily in times of trial, but in times of abundance and abounding. You know, there's a really, there's a really cool, you guys are studying through Proverbs. There's a really cool proverb in chapter 27, verse 21, where the, where the writer says, the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. Now, I remember the first time reading that thinking, okay, I know where this is going. Crucible silver, furnace gold. You have a man is tested. And then, bam, praise. And you're thinking that the, the writer is leading you up to the point where he's going to say, a man is tested by his trials. A woman is tested by her affliction. They're tested by their pain. But then he says a man is tested by his praise. Think about what's happening there. The crucible and the furnace, they both test things by heating them up. And so there's some way, according to this proverb, there's some way that praise heats the soul. There's some ways that praise tests the soul and reveals the heart and gets at things within us that can't be obtained or accessed by trial. And I was thinking about Esther. You know, the book of Esther, you got the, the guy Haman, the wicked Haman. He's like second in charge in the entire kingdom. And everybody has to bow and pay homage to Haman. And everybody does bow and pay homage to Haman, except for one guy named Mordecai. And so you know what happens? Haman lives the rest of his life a very satisfied man because almost everyone in the kingdom praises him. Is that right? No. No. Haman launches a campaign to exterminate all of the Jews. Why? Because one person would not praise him. The praise of most was not enough. The praise of almost everyone, 99.9% .9 of everyone, was not enough. He needed to have the praise of all. He would only be satisfied with the praise of all. In other words, his heart was tested by praise. His heart was revealed by praise. I brought a quote with me by Charles Spurgeon. He once said, The Christian more often disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he is being abased. In prosperity, in praise, than when he is being abased. Here's the point that I'm getting at. Let's not lose sight of where we're going. 
Paul discerned this. Paul understood this. He got that there were unique temptations that would come at him from that direction. And so this is what he did. He treated plenty and hunger just the same. He treated plenty and hunger as places where he could potentially seek his satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. He could potentially seek his identity outside of Jesus Christ. And so he was careful with plenty and praise. And so that's the one side, abounding, abundance, praise, plenty. But then Paul describes a whole other set of experiences. He talks about being brought low. Facing hunger, facing needs. He's talking about the hard times. He's talking about the by now I should have been times. Maybe you're feeling that this morning. You're sitting here and you're saying, yeah, that's the time I'm, I'm in right now. I've, you know, I've been passed over at work or came here thinking the business was going to do great and the business is, is tanking and or I had this close relationship, and it just seemed like it was so strong. But, but my friend has not only disappointed me, but doesn't even understand it. We're not even talking now. Or, or maybe you feel like you have failed in some really significant way. And, and right now, you're in a season where it feels like your dreams, your desires for the future, they're on a respirator gasping for air. You just don't have it anymore. Your, your ambitions are starved. To get back to the Puritan quote, we have not what we desire. And, and here's the thing. Paul says, yeah, I've, I've learned to do that too. He literally says, I have learned to be brought low. Which means that we're encountering here in Philippians a man who understood and could be content with unsatisfied dreams, with unsatisfied desires, with even failure. I mean, the lessons for, of contentment were so important to God for Paul that God would actually ordain for Paul to be humbled. God would ordain for Paul to be brought low. It's like Paul, Paul can go to the third heaven, but to keep him from being too elated, God sticks a thorn in his side that pins him in dependence to Jesus Christ. Three times he prays that God would remove it, but God says, no, you want, you want grace, you want power, you get it through weakness. Paul says, I've learned to be brought low. And maybe that's like the theme over this season for you, being brought low. It's, it's maybe an unexpected illness that you never thought that you would have, you know, when you sit down to write the story of your life, you had this certain idea of the trajectory. You, th you, you felt like you had a general sense of the path, and yet it hasn't looked anything like that because of this illness or this problem or this divorce or, 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 or just the way the story has gone. And maybe it's not even something that's, that's huge. Maybe it's just an area of weakness that, that dogs you you know, each and every day or maybe once a week. Uh, it's just a way that God has, has formed you that you're dependent upon other people, that you're not God, you're not omnipotent and omniscient and, and, and omnicompetent. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of, an, of, of a thing. You know, one day, I'm sitting in the family room 
reading with Kim. So I'm sitting on a chair. She's over on the couch. We're both reading. Kim thinks she hears water running in the basement. She says to me, one of the kids in the basement shower? And I look up and I say, I don't think so. She says, oh, okay. And I say, oh, okay. We go back to reading. And about 10 minutes later, this kind of, as I'm reading, this kind of stray thought pierces my consciousness. It just comes off from out of the blue. I thought, wait a minute. We don't have a basement shower, and I do think I hear the water running. And I, and I go downstairs, and the water, um, there's definitely water running. And I know you're, you're sitting there thinking, now, you know, wait a minute. Could this guy really be this dumb? <laughs> Hang on. It gets much worse. So I, I look around the corner, and there is a hole in the wall, and there's a pipe behind the hole that is burst, and it's shooting water across the, the, the basement, and it's splashing off of the other wall. And actually, my first thought was, hey, that's kind of cool. Except I realized at one point, this is not somebody else's house. This is my house, and I have to figure out a way to turn the water off. And I think I may have been, like, asleep in this class in high school that teaches you on how to turn the water off very quickly when you need to turn the water off. Because I'm just, like, running around the basement, flipping light switches and turning knobs and just trying to figure out what to do. And I can do nothing as the water is pouring in the basement. So I have this neighbor. His name's Ralph. <laughs> Ralph's one guy. He knows how to do everything, you know? Hey, Ralph, what'd you do this weekend? Well, I had a couple of spare hours, so I put this addition on the home. <laughs> you know, what did you do? Well, you know, I colored with my kids. I, uh, <laughs> I had an hour, and so I... I'm going to put a helipad on the house next, you know. So, you know, just one of these guys that knows how to do everything. And I hate Ralph. <laughs> so Kim is on the phone. She knows what to do. I mean, she knows the drill. I've put her in this situation a thousand times. We have, we have more insurance claims over house things like this than anybody I know. And so she immediately follows the protocol, gets Ralph on the phone. Ralph, it's happened again. It's Dave, basement, water, click. So, Ralph, I'm standing in the basement, three inches of water, more water coming up. I'm standing there. I don't know what to do. I'm just like there. And Ralph comes walking through the basement door. He catches my eye. He, he, he's looking at me the whole time. He's walking across the basement. He goes over to a closet. He opens up the closet, continues to lock eyes with me, opens up the closet, reaches in, turns a knob. The water shuts down. He never stops looking at me. He turns around. He continues to walk and then walks right out the door of the basement. <laughs> and I'm standing there in three inches of water realizing this is a low moment. And I have too many of these. And, and you have them too. See, my, mine was a, a comical one, but... But let's be honest. I mean, they get a lot worse than that, don't they? Let me ask you a question. Where is the pipe gushing in your house right now? Where is it? Is it the situation with you're here, you're single, you got the roommate situation, and, and you just can't get it, and, but it just doesn't seem to be going away? 
Maybe it's marriage, parenting the kids. Maybe you have a teenager and you're learning to do that thing, parenting the teens. It's laying some low. You're being brought low. Now, don't miss what, what's, what's being said here. Paul says, yeah, I've, I've learned how to do that. I've learned to be brought low. See, we're encountering in Paul, this man, we're encountering a man who was equally satisfied preaching in front of King Agrippa or when his status is taking a hit and he's just sitting in prison. Man, I want to be more like that. How about you? How do you do when your dreams and your life just don't seem to intersect? You know, they just keep missing one another. When life seems to force you down rather than lift you up. You know, life changes when we begin to see the denial of our dreams and the denial of our desires differently. In other words, that it's not ultimately a, a punishment from God, which is what we so often believe, or it's some penalty for something we've done in the past or some way we're displeasing him in the present. But it's actually God defining the path of our walk and creating a character where he gets at certain things in our soul that can be acquired in no other way than through a denied dream. I'm sure your life is like mine. I mean, my, my life is like I'm, like I'm walking down a hallway, and, and it's God's hallway. I was converted to the beginning of the hallway. I felt the Spirit of God begin walking me down the hallway. I'm walking down this hallway. And, and, and you come upon these doors on both sides of the hallway, and as you're walking through life, and, and at one point you feel like, like God is leading you behind this door into this room, and, and everything inside of you says, you know what, I think... God is for me and with me to move in that direction. In fact, God is behind that door for me. And we pray and we fast and we seek counsel and we think, yeah, God is leading me in this direction. God is leading me behind that door. And we go and we try the door and the door is locked. And we think, well, the problem must be that I'm not doing enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not exerting myself enough. I have to bring more spiritual momentum to bear on it. And so we double up on praying. We double up on getting counsel, on doing all the things that we should do. And we try the door again, and it remains locked. Not just locked, but bolted shut. And we cannot reconcile why it seems like God is behind that door for us, but we can't get through. And so we begin to beat on the door, and, and the door will not yield. And we think if we beat long enough, we'll, the door will eventually yield. But we beat and beat, and it doesn't yield, and we bloody our fists upon the door, and it still will not yield. And we grow exhausted trying to get through the door, but for some reason, we have this deep desire to go through, but the door will not yield. And eventually, we just... We collapse at the foot of the door, exhausted, disoriented, confused, unable to reconcile why we would have such a strong desire to go through the door, but that desire would not be satisfied. And eventually the Spirit of God comes along and the Spirit of God begins to speak to us and remind us of the sovereignty of God and breathes life into us, and gets us up on our feet, and dusts us off, and we keep going down the hallway. 
And we try another door, and it opens, and another two doors remain closed, and then another door opens up. And we begin to realize as we're continuing to walk through this Christian life that there are ways that God deals with us where he will at times inspire dreams that he does not satisfy, where he will incite desires that he will not satisfy because there are things, there are ways of becoming godly and learning about God that can only be achieved through an unsatisfied dream and an unsatisfied desire. There's a way of depending upon God that can only be locked down by not receiving something, but by not receiving something. So I ask you again, how do you do when your dreams and your life just don't intersect, when life seems to force you down rather than lift you up? I brought another quote with me this morning. This one is by J.I. Packer. J.R. Packer once said, the world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able at all times to succeed in measurable ways and that it is a great disgrace not to hangs over the Christian community like a pall of acrid smoke. Can I make an appeal this morning? Let me just make one appeal this morning. If you take one thing away from this message, let this be ringing in your ear. Don't buy the world's definition of success. Don't buy a vision of the future that says there are no places for trial. There are no place for failure. There's no place for denied ambition. There's no place for he must increase, but I must decrease. Because people live their life craving worldly success, never realizing that God may ordain their hunger to save their soul. That God is more committed to our rescue than our earthly success. And here's the thing. Paul understood that. It's how he found peace in prison. That success was not achieved through a vision of constant ascent from one season to the next season, that it was learned, that the secret was learned by linking your identity to something outside of those things. And that's why his entire line of thought converges in verse 13. Verse 13 is like the secret of contentment unveiled, and this is how he says it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul wants to complete the lesson that he's begun. He wants us to understand the secret of contentment. And so this is it. He says, you ready? This is it. It's him who strengthens me. And of course, him who strengthens Paul is the same him who strengthens us, and that's Jesus Christ. And so Paul is conveying that contentment is learned by becoming experts at examining and then enjoying what it means to be in Jesus Christ, which kind of returns us then to that idea that we started on, which is if we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. 
See, you want to know how to fight the discontent that you're feeling right now in your life? Think about it this way. At the heart of discontent is this fundamental conviction. It goes something like this. Yeah, I, I don't have what I deserve. In this area, in this job, in this relationship, in this marriage, with these kids at this time, in this local church, I don't have what I deserve. And that's where the gospel answers us with this cheery news. You're absolutely right. You don't have what you deserve. And you can thank God for that. See, the heart of discontent is the subtle comparison that produces the idea that we deserve better. That's what has worked in our heart when we're experiencing discontent. You strip it all down. You strip it bare. It's like right there. The stone it says, we deserve better. But what the gospel does is it turns that complaint on its head and reminds us that regardless of our state, be it humble or exalted, plenty or hunger, abundance or need, we live infinitely above what we really deserve. We live infinitely above what we really deserve. And we get at that by remembering the gospel, remembering what the gospel teaches. See, so often people think they're going to they're going to alter their contentment or their discontentment issues by, by, by simply, you know, visiting a relative or perhaps a portion of the island where there are people that are worse off than you are. And we compare and contrast and we solve the problem of our discontent with just seeing where they are with the hope that that's going to incite or inspire fresh gratitude for what we have, as if the key to contentment is just comparing ourselves with those in less favorable situations. Now, that can be helpful, but that's not the point, because we don't ultimately find contentment by comparing ourselves to others who have less than we do. We find contentment by comparing what we have to what our sins deserve. We find contentment by remembering the gospel. See, it's the gospel that reminds us of what we truly deserve, that we were spiritually wretched, that we were lost and miserable and broken human beings. And what's more, we clung prideful to our place, and we were powerless to alter our circumstances. We could do nothing. We were impotent. And not only that, but we were incomprehensibly committed to remaining that way. We were incomprehensibly committed to remaining in a destructive lifestyle and did not want to seek God. We were at enemies with God, at enmity with him. But God, who is rich in mercy, came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he wrenched us free of our irrational commitment to our own destruction by dying in our place. He gave us resurrection. He gave us reason to live. And he gave us this hope that we would live again. And that's why we are strong in Jesus Christ. That is why he strengthens us. And that's the secret of contentment. And when we have it, it frees us to be at rest in the present but still dream of the future. I mean, again, Paul sits in prison, content, and yet he talks about these ambitions he has for the future. 
And so in like manner, we have to live in the present with peace or at peace in the present while we still burn for more and pray for more and ask for more and press for more and and desire more and strive for more and live for more. And yes, if necessary, die for more. So, if you're here this morning and you have not what you desire, take heart, take comfort, don't take a break. If you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that reminds us not only of what we deserve, but of what you have done for us, of the love that you have for us, and all all you have accomplished for us, that we might be united to you, that we might be a part of your family, that we might experience forgiveness, that we might be redeemed. Lord, that we might have a future with dreams and desires that will be satisfied, some of them in this life, some of them in the next. Lord, we thank you for giving us eternity. In Jesus' name we pray.